Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses issues of international significance. Today's topic is the coronavirus pandemic in France and Europe. We're fortunate to be able to talk today with Ettore Reiki, a professor at the Institute for Political Studies, better known as Sciences Po, a leading French academic institution. Professor Reiki is also affiliated with the European University Institute, a leading European institution of graduate education that's located outside of Florence, Italy. He is author or co-author of three recent books on the process of European integration. Uh, first is, most recently is uh, Everyday Europe, Social Transnationalism in an Unsettled Continent from 2019, Mobile Europe, The Theory and Practice of Free Movement in the EU from 2015, and together with Adrian Favel, Pioneers of European Integration, Mobility and Citizenship in the EU from 2009. Professor Reiki joins us today from Paris. Thank you so much for joining us on International Horizons. My pleasure, John. Great to have you. So you've recently been doing a lot of research on the way that the French uh, experienced the fairly severe lockdown imposed by President Emmanuel Macron to try to get control of the epidemic in France. Was he vindicated in his approach? Well, I, I would say that he was moderately successful. Um, on balance, uh, at the end of a lockdown, we see that death rates in France are more or less in line with the European average, uh, which means uh, slightly better than death rates uh, in Italy and Spain, uh, and somehow worse than the mortality rate in the Netherlands, and especially Germany. But that's, that's a bit of a classic. I mean, the French fare slightly better than Italians on a number of indicators and definitely worse than, than the Germans, which is their uh, ideal benchmark. In this case, uh, we may talk about these later, um, the Germany, uh, the casualty rate of Germany was extraordinarily low in comparison. Um, the French death rate was about uh, 450 person per million residents. The Italian and Spanish rate is between uh, 500 and 600 deaths per 1 million residents. And the German rate is about four or five times lower, about 100 and something uh, deaths per uh, million residents. Uh, but overall, uh, I mean, the French had a, had a bad start. 
they were late. And, and I mean, as, as an Italian born and an Italian citizen uh, living in France, uh, and, and since the pandemic, the epidemic started somewhat earlier in Italy, I could see it coming. And, and, and that's why I launched a, a research project with some anticipation <laughs> to my French colleagues. There were a couple of weeks of, of delay uh, between, between France and, and Italy. And, and they could see that the French government was not acting and, and they could have saved some lives if they started lockdown at least uh, 10, 15 days earlier. Um, uh, they even held a municipal election on the eve of a lockdown, which was, uh, on retrospect, quite a serious mistake. Uh, I've seen a recent piece of uh, econometric research estimating that uh, death rates have been uh, uh, larger uh, when uh, uh, the turnouts uh, have been higher in the, in, the, in, the, in the towns where more people went to the polls, uh, which means that that decision could have uh, uh, increase the number of casualties, especially among the uh, uh, elderly. So that was a mistake. Um, another mistake, a spectacular mistake, was at some point the French government at the beginning said, well, wearing masks is not that useful to prevent from, from contagion. So they even discouraged the use or, or at least they did not encourage the use of masks. And it was found uh, afterwards that they did so uh, because they were running short of, of reserves on masks. And some other governments, not the current government, but some other governments uh, in the past decided uh, that keeping a reserve of, of masks, of chirurgical masks, was not that uh, necessary. So there was a rush to buying masks from China at exorbitant prices uh, uh, to fill up the stocks. And actually, it was not the government that acted in the first place. It was rather uh, regional governments uh, uh, that did so. And, and that was very clumsy. And eventually, another kind of mistake was uh, the communication of the president. Um, uh, president Macron uh, staged three televised uh, speeches, uh, which uh, it's not only my opinion. I mean, there are communication specialists. I'm not a communication specialist who, who scored uh, very badly these, these, these speeches. They were long or lengthy, 25 minutes each. Uh, they were very emphatic. Uh, they were highbrow. Uh, for instance, at some point, Macron echoed the nation um, um, on the virtues of reading, spending time, uh, thinking about life, taking a pose, and being philosophical, uh, which was kind of ridiculous, on the verge of ridiculous at that point. And he also at some point used some uh, emphatical and bombastic uh, warlike rhetoric, which again uh, was all uh, was not very convincing. 
But having said this, um, overall, what really uh, worked well and kind of protected uh, society uh, at large was, was the welfare system. You know that France is the, 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 the country in the OECD, in, in the Western world or among uh, industrialized, advanced, rich societies that spends the most on social protection. And, and that, that worked out. I mean, uh, people uh, felt protected. Uh, 40% of people stopped working, uh, but almost nobody lost a job. Uh, because they they had they received quite generous uh, unemployment subsidies. Uh, there is there is a, a procedure by which you can claim an unemployment subsidy, uh, which uh, uh, which which is at least eighty four percent of your full salary. So uh, people did not panic in in these in this regard, and and that was that was key also at keeping. Uh, I would say uh, social peace and and some some sense of control over people's lives. That's interesting, and of course, it's a bit of a contrast from what we've seen in the United States. Um, but in any case, you uh, said that the lockdown was, despite the missteps and the overblown rhetoric, maybe from uh, President Macron. Uh, that the, the whole thing was relatively effective. And, uh, you know, it may be that it was effective because it was relatively harsh. Uh, but you've done a lot of research on the question of how people actually experienced the lockdown and who was, you know, it did more disadvantaged than, than other people. So maybe you could talk about that research. Yeah, happy to do so. Yeah, um, actually... Um, I teamed up with a number of colleagues uh, at Sciences Po, my university, uh, from two different research centers. One is my own research center, which is called Observatoire Sociologique du Changement, the Observatory for Social Change. And another center is a center uh, that manages social political data. And it turns out that this center uh, manages an existing um, Panel that is a recurrent survey of, of a stable uh, sample of, of, a, of a French population, a, a representative sample of a French population, a survey that has been carried out persistently since 2012. So um, we, we ask the people that are part of this permanent survey uh, to collaborate with us, and they, they accept us. So we had um, uh, 1,400 people, again, evenly distributed among uh, social categories, classes, gender, age, uh, groups, uh, occupations, uh, to answer an ad hoc survey that we set up and we submitted to them uh, every other week. And we also had a, a, I mean, a, a, a smaller sa- sample that answered daily questions. And so we could follow people basically from the start, from the second week after the start of the lockdown until until today, until we carried out the last survey two weeks after uh, the lockdown. 
with, with a great advantage that we also had information about what people did and what people thought uh, before the lockdown back to uh, several years uh, ago. So um, we inquired on a number of, of different issues, the psychological effects, uh, the reorganization of everyday life, uh, relations within the household, uh, leisure, the use of internet, you name it. And, and uh, one major thing that we found, and which is kind of counterintuitive, is that um, people did not get depressed by the situation. Uh, quite the contrary. Actually, we found that their self-reported level of uh, physical health and psychological health, well-being, uh, even increased compared to uh, one year earlier. Uh, and actually stayed relatively up uh, 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 for all the period. And I, I, I happen to call this uh, the eye of a hurricane paradox, uh, because my, 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 my hypothesis or my uh, assumption is that, why that? Well, because w when you see that, that there is a storm and you, you, you are not touched, you're, you're, uh, you're not affected, uh, overall, you 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 resist the storm. Well, you're kind of energized by that, and 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 you you tend to assess your own condition uh, better than you would have done otherwise. Uh, of course, there are exceptions. Eh? There are exceptions, and I, I would not. Uh, I, I would not neglect the fact that some people did not fare that well. And, and in particular, uh, people in left-behind areas, uh, and that's, I would say, something that you can find uh, everywhere in the world, but even in France or, or as well, there are uh, famous or infamous uh, banlieues outside of Paris uh, mostly in a department called Saint-Saint-Denis, uh, which is one of the poorest uh, areas in France. And, and eventually, this was the area with the, with the highest level of, of infection and, and casualties. And uh, we don't have data on ethnic minorities because, uh, uh, as you know, uh, these are legally forbidden. Ethnic statistics are legally forbidden in, in France. But we know that, for instance, in that department, Saint-Saint-Denis, uh, there is a, a very high proportion of second-generation immigrants uh, from, from North Africa and from other regions of Africa. Um, we found out uh, that... Uh, uh, there, is, there was a new divide, actually, and I want to highlight. And the new divide is uh, the workplace, where people who kept on working did happen to, uh, to work. And, and, and people who kept on going to the usual workplace um, were, in fact, more depressed. And, and, and mostly it's, it's blue-collar workers or what uh, some call essential workers. And these people 
uh, were more at risk physically. Uh, we had also a measure of, of uh, COVID infections, and these people had twice the risk of being infected than the rest of the population. And, and, and also psychologically, these people were much more depressed than, than the rest of the population. So this is a, a, an emerging cleavage that uh, uh, we, we found out during, during the lockdown. And then there is the issue of gender. Um, actually, um, we found out that the reorganization of everyday life um, um, relied a lot on, on, on the volunteerism, on the engagement of women a lot. Um, even though the French are not particularly, uh, at least on paper, gender biased, uh, uh, the bulk of the extra activity, especially with children, uh, fell on the shoulders of women. Um, for instance, you know that schools were closed and children were uh, uh, doing their classes at home, uh, either via Zoom or via extra activities. Well, it turns out that uh, uh, three-quarter of, of mothers uh, reported uh, spending at least uh, some time uh, uh, schooling the children daily, whereas only uh, 15% of, of fathers did so. And, and, and <laughs> there is even something funny uh, um, Turns out, I, we, we asked about weight, for instance, how much people waited uh, at the start of a lockdown, how much they, they, they waited at the end. And, and it turns out that women gain uh, uh, weight and uh, much more than men. And actually, it's women staying at home that gain weight, whereas men who stayed at home lost weight. And, and my speculation is that women who stayed at home had extra domestic work to, to do. So they were kind of stressed by it, and, and, and so they gained weight. Whereas men um, staying at home, uh, they, they, well, they, they, they had a good time maybe, and they, they went for a run. Uh, or they could, could do uh, exercise or work out on their, uh, on the rooftops. So it sounds as though many of the inequalities that have been revealed by the coronavirus pandemic in the United States have also emerged in, uh, in France, even though of course, because of the peculiarity that you don't, you're not allowed to collect data or there's no official data on ethnicity. This is perhaps less obvious from the official statistics, but otherwise it sounds like in many ways, the same kinds of disparities emerged from what you uh, found in your research. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it does sound right to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, my sense is that psychologically, uh, the safety net of, of the French welfare state, uh, not only psychologically, actually, uh, could have uh, been effective in, in avoiding uh, the sort of distress and the sort of uh, yeah uh, high 
the traumatic uh, psychological effects that that the, that the epidemic is causing in in, in the U.S. in many in many regards. So how would you measure sort of the overall kind of damage that the coronavirus has done to France and to Europe more generally? Um, let, me, let me say something about, about France. Uh, as I said, uh, individually, uh, although there are disparities, inequalities, I, I would say that uh, French society comes out of a lockdown um, relatively well. Um, I, I don't think that there are major... Uh, I, I think that life can go back to some sort of normal now that the lockdown is over. Um, yeah, there are, there are instances of people who, for instance, I, 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 can, I can think of some of my students. Uh, and one thing I did not mention is that apparently uh, people in Paris uh, did fare worse than, than people in the rest of France, not only because they, they, the rate of infection and, and the, the mortality rate was higher in Paris, which is, which is an effect possibly of the density of a population density of a city, much like New York, um, but uh, also because, because, because um, apartments are very expensive and, and people tend to live in, in, in small apartments. And, and this, this is a cause of uh, psychological uh, stress. And I have, uh, uh, anecdotically, I have a number of students who were particularly uh, exhausted by because they, they live in extremely small uh, studios. That's the name of it. Uh, one piece flats. Um, some of them wrote to me. You know, I, I've been spending two two months in in uh, eight square meters uh, apartment, and that's a bit like being jailed. And and and, and I can see that. And our data reveal these. Uh, uh, psychologically, the most affected are Parisians. So, in a sense, there is something ironic in this. Uh, people living in rural areas and in provincial towns uh, fared much better than than Parisians. It's a sort of revenge of a province against against Paris. And if you remember, there have been uh, for a couple of years protests of a so-called yellow vest in in, in France. Uh, basically, uh, a kind of populist protest that targeted uh, Paris as being overprivileged and and leaving behind the rest of France. Now the situation has totally gone in reverse during during the epidemic. Um, at the macro level, uh, uh, the damage is is hard to assess. Uh, I'm not an economist, and even economists, as far as I can see, are really uh, uh, throwing out all sorts of predictions about what's next. Um, will there be a, a V sort of recovery, a L sort of recovery? Uh, we really don't know. Uh, it seems that uh, as far as, as, as we can see from everyday life, 
um, production chains has not been disrupted. Uh, supply chains have not been disrupted, at least nationally. Uh, just to, to, to say something very, um, let's say, very, uh, very in daily life, uh, uh, supermarkets have never had any issue. You could find all sorts of uh, food and supplies and staples. Uh, there was no problem in that, in that regard. Uh, uh, really, the state uh, is is one of a, uh, in a sense, one of the big winners uh, uh, because because uh, the state pumped up uh, so much money into into the economy and society, and we know that the the, uh, uh, the deficit of the state skyrocketed from about one hundred percent of GDP to one hundred and twenty in only in only three months, but they. They saved uh, France, they saved Renault, they saved all the major so-called industrial champions, throwing the states through an enormous amount, billions and billions of, of euros into uh, uh, saving companies. At some point in one of his televised speeches, President Macron said, uh, not a single French company will go bankrupt because of this crisis. Point is, uh, what's the cost of it? Maybe the state will go bankrupt, and <laughs> and firms will not. Uh, but having said this, I, I think uh, people are now uh, even more uh, uh, attached to the state, and, and we saw this in our last round of survey. Uh, in the last way, we had a number of attitudinal questions about the image of the state, the image of European Union, uh, the image of globalization, and people are becoming uh, uh, are becoming more state centered, and even more so, people who had gone through uh, uh, the, the, uh, who have suffered from from COVID, and and these people are really uh, more. Uh, uh, let's say, nationalistic than they used to be. Uh, whereas uh, anti-globalization sentiments uh, have grown and skepticism for the EU has also grown in parallel. Fascinating. I mean, I think there's been a lot of discussion about how this is a moment when the state returns because it's the only actor on the scene that's really capable of exactly. respond, yeah. responding yeah. to the level of uh, distress and crisis. Of course, in the United States, there's perhaps more debate about that in the halls of Congress. Uh, but nonetheless, so far, the federal government has already uh, appropriated Several several trillion dollars, uh, and seems somewhat likely to do that again in um, in July. But that remains to be seen, of course. Um, but in the meantime, uh, France and and Europe more generally are sort of opening up, and uh, there are openings of borders across the European Union. 
I wonder whether you could comment on how that's working out. And I mean, it's obviously early, uh, but what's your sense of what's happening with intra-European borders? I mean, it had been a free movement zone in the Schengen region, so-called Schengen region. Uh, but how is that? I mean, as you say, there's a return to nations and a return to borders. And uh, I wonder how you, uh, how you see that all uh, developing. That's a favorite topic of yours, John, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and mine too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah um, actually, the, the image of, of a Schengen system, as it is, is that it is a, a wholly EU-managed uh, border regulation in the sense that there is a common framework for uh, uh, controlling uh, people coming in from outside the EU, a sort of proto-federal system of border management and, and, and the abolition of internal border controls. But what most people don't know is, in fact, that this system is not EU-managed. It's, it's an agreement, and it was, it was created as a, as a separate agreement from the EU. It was an agreement between the member states of the EU, but legally, at least in, a, in, a, in the early phase, not not uh, part of a EU uh, legal system. And even when it became, in the early 2000s, part of a EU legal system, still it left uh, the power to uh, individual member states to decide autonomously whether border control are uh, uh, activated or not. And, and in fact, border controls were suspended unilaterally at different times uh, by different member states. So what used to be a sort of homogeneous uh, no-border system uh, uh, became a jigsaw puzzle of border controls. And now that there is some, some reopening, also the reopening is very much a tug of war uh, between different countries and negotiations. Uh, so, for instance, between France and Italy, Italy uh, uh, removed border controls for people coming in from France, but France uh, did not. Uh, so there is some sort of uh, imbalanced uh, uh, border control. And that flies in the face uh, of, of, of the idea that uh, Europe is a borderless uh, uh, region. Uh, it's not. And actually, if you, if you dig deeper into that, you find out, for instance, that officially France suspended the uh, Schengen Agreement in November 2015, um, immediately after the Bataclan uh, terrorist attacks. And, and it suspended it for six months, and every six months, they renew the suspension. And even though uh, 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 this suspension, most of the times, is only a formal thing, and you can cross borders between France and Belgium and Germany uh, and Italy and Spain without actual border control, they still, I mean, France still retains the, uh, uh, the power uh, uh, to um, to do to carry out border controls, uh, they can overnight 
put up a border control, and 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 that's very much uh, a French decision, and and the EU has no saying in in this. So uh, I think that that the situation exposes uh, some sort of gap between the EU symbolic power over borders and the de facto power or enduring power of nations over borders. Very interesting, because it obviously bears greatly on the whole process of reopening and the extent to which, in some ways, that's even possible. Um, but I want to go back now to something uh, that you th- that came up before when you were talking about the death rates in uh, France and elsewhere in Europe. And, it, and it's really a question about data, since we're sociologists here, we're not economists, but we talk about data a lot. And, you know, the way you talked about data, the, the casualty rates was in terms of rates, not in terms of absolute numbers. Uh, you sort of said uh, there were certain numbers, you know, relative to a million of population. Uh, so that these numbers are essentially comparable across different countries. And, you know, I've often been frustrated in the course of this uh, pandemic about the fact that, you know, you get absolute numbers uh, that really aren't very helpful, or you get numbers, uh, indeed, you you spoke about deaths, Um, you know, you get numbers of cases, which it seems to me from what I've seen uh, is, you know, very, very uncertain the extent to which we know how many actual cases there are out there. And then in turn, as far as deaths, you know, whether somebody's actually died of COVID-19 or other causes, some of them possibly related to the reasons that they got COVID-19, like so-called underlying uh, medical conditions. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the quality of the data that we are looking at in the course of this uh, episode and, uh, you know, how useful are various different things and uh, what's reliable and what's unreliable. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's, that's one major uh, first-class lesson in sociological methods. Uh, all data are constructed data. I mean, in the social sciences, maybe not only in the social sciences, but particularly in the social sciences. And this is a case in point. Um, we shouldn't buy uh, uh, numbers at face value because... Because the number of the number of people uh, of cases, the number of recovered, the number of um, critical cases, all these very much depends on how countries or subnational authorities record cases. Even that, uh, I think that overall, among all the sorts of data that we uh, navigate during the pandemic. The most reliable information is the death rate. That's why I mentioned that. But even that, um, uh, I don't buy, for instance, the death rates of uh, autocracies. Uh, uh, non-democratic countries have, have a vested interest in keeping uh, mortality rates low and, and show off as being particularly uh, efficient. Uh, I mean, it's it's... 
uh, apparently, if you look at the death rate, uh, Iran is even more efficient than Germany in containing uh, the, the, the pandemic, and, and I don't buy that. Um, um, but even the death rate, I was saying, it's, it's a matter of registration systems. Uh, we know that the majority, for instance, of people who die by, from, from COVID, um, they also, there is a comorbidity, right, in, in medical terms. That is, they also uh, have other pathologies. And, and when it comes to recording the causes of death, that boils down to the kind of uh, death recording sheet that you have in front of, of yourself. And the official recording the death may decide or may be instructed uh, to tick uh, a cell which is not the COVID cell. It's rather, I don't know, a heart attack or lung disease or whatever. So uh, I think there should be bottom-up studies on how data have been collected and, and registered in, in, different, in different countries or in different uh, health systems. Uh, that's something that we, we sociologists could contribute to. Uh, we need macro-level studies uh, comparing... Uh, the effectiveness of health systems, comparing uh, statistical aggregates like population density, population structure, uh, how old is the population, um, um, health performance indicators. Uh, but having said this, uh, I think that uh, having on-the-ground studies about how data uh, about the epidemic were collected in different locations would be very instructive to know uh, what eventually we want to know, which systems were more uh, uh, efficient in, in containing the epidemic and limiting the number of casualties and, and which systems were, were less. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm definitely... I, I think it's true that the German death rate is a st substantially lower than, than the French uh, um, mortality rate from COVID. But I, I was told from some uh, German colleagues that at least in the first uh, weeks of a disease, uh, um, there, was, there was a tendency to... Uh, um, uh, to Record uh, deaths by COVID from COVID as as being uh, caused by other uh, pathologies, and, and and that might be sh that should be factored in. Yes, I'm sure that's right, and and I just recently came across uh, uh, a new project. Uh, organized around Thomas Frieden, the former head of the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, uh, that is all about this uh, attempt to uh, record deaths in a relatively comparable fashion. 
irrespective of the capacities of you know governments to really do that. So in other words, the, the real concern is is in fact trying to track COVID-related deaths in parts of the world that have relatively little uh, health, public health, and, and medical infrastructure, uh, so as to be able to track the disease more effectively. And and they've also suggested that the real the real metric that we want to be using here is excess deaths that is the number of deaths that uh, exceeds that which one would expect in a particular period of time let's say the month of march uh, as compared to previous years you know the month of march uh, for the last 5 years or 10 years or something like that so in any case there are efforts to move in this uh, in the kind of direction that you're talking about but it's obviously a major problem and i i just often feel as though the kind of public and journalistic discussion of these uh, developments is is undermined by using absolute numbers that really in a way don't tell you anything about anything. But in any case, let me say thank you so much for being willing to do this. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professor Ettore Reiki of Sciences Po and the European University Institute for his insights about the experience of the lockdown and the reopening of France and of Europe. I also want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance uh, at the Ralph Bunch Institute. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons.